Welcome to the First Dan Football Show. I am your host, Tobias Brown. And folks, we are back with another great interview for you guys. I'm here with a little bit of a European football legend today. I'm here with quarterback Sean Shelton. Sean, how are we doing today, man? I'm doing well, man. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, for sure. So you obviously were not born in Europe, but you have kind of made Europe your home. So I want to get into your early years. You were born and raised in Florida, correct? Well, actually, uh, I was born... I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, and then when I was two, we moved down to a town called Palm Harbor, Missouri, uh, Palm Harbor, Missouri, Palm Harbor, Florida, in the Tampa Bay area. And I was raised, uh, raised there, and then actually went back for college to the KC area. So well, those are those are kind of my two homes. You just answered my because my first question was going to be how did you get from Florida to Missouri for college, but that makes yeah. a lot more sense. I want to ask about your recruiting process though coming okay. out of high school you ended up at william jewel which is a d2 school in missouri yep. plays you know for folks who aren't familiar with william jewel you guys right now are playing teams like ohio dominican who is a local team for us uh you played schools like the university of indianapolis so what mm-hmm. went into the decision to go to william jewel and what was your recruiting process like yeah it was it, honestly it was tough um I went to an underperforming high school. Uh, it was an academic school that was only, I don't know, 10, 12 years old when I started going there. Uh, my senior year, we had the best season in school history at seven and four, which is uh, not great. A seven and three, I believe. Um, and yeah, I, I was skinny. I didn't, I probably didn't do as much in the weight room as I should have been, should have done. I think the talent was there, but it just, I was easily overlooked. I was too small. I was, you know, I didn't have the great numbers, um, but um, I was recruited by a lot of Division One AA schools, which is probably where I should have gone in retrospect. Uh, but I was being looked at by a couple D1 schools, Florida Atlantic, most uh, notably. And that kind of scared off the one double A's. And then when that fell through, I was kind of on signing day. I remember I was sitting there with no interest, no offers, no, uh, I had a, I had a, I had a letter from Florida that I was kind of like clinging on to, you know, it was the first letter, letter I ever got. Um, but it was just like, yeah, I just completely fell through the cracks and that can happen. It's a, it's a very, very imperfect system. And there's things that I could have done on my side better. Like, you know, if, if football was something that I wanted to dedicate myself to or make a life out of and being professional was the ultimate goal, probably going to a different high school, getting in a better culture. Um, you know, we did all the recruiting tours and Nike camps and stuff like that, but, you know, just being in a better environment would have been helpful, but it was a cool process, but it's, it was very, un, uh, you know, it's a very imperfect and a, and a talented kid who went to a poor, you know, uh, underperforming high school and was skinny, uh, kind of got overlooked. And that's how it was kind of like my family and I looked at each other. My parents and I looked at each other after signing day. I was like, okay, well now we're starting over. And then we went to the recruiting fairs and, and all the interest was in the middle or uh, the, the Midwest, which was interesting, but, um, yeah, an imperfect process, I think, is a long story short. And that's something we see a lot. You know, we've talked to a lot of guys who are still playing pro and, you know, maybe had D1 looks, but they were told, oh, you're too short or you're too skinny. And 
they had all the talent. They'd played against yeah. D one guys, but D one is such a it's such a fickle process. It yeah, a half an inch could be what gets you the scholarship or doesn't. Absolutely, and I was just so raw as a player. I remember when I I did one year as a volunteer coach at William Jewell after I was done playing my first season in Europe because that's what I thought I used to want want to do is be a college football coach. And I remember watching my film. I was like, how would I actually evaluate myself? And that's kind of you know talented but just so raw so raw and so skinny man it's like yeah i could see why guys would pass um so it's like looking back on it there's things i could have done better but nevertheless talent at the end of the day should be should be the golden rule right not not some height weight chart but uh it's not always the case you know, we've seen it time and time again, whether it be Drew Brees, he was too short, and all he did was pretty much shatter every record that stood until Tom yeah. Brady found avocado ice cream, and now he's playing yeah. until he's 95 at this point. Yeah. But I want to ask you about William Jewell, because you got there, and you had success. You know, I always tell people, don't just look at numbers, because numbers are misleading, because yeah, this is a team sport. It takes 11 guys, so the numbers weren't always as gaudy as maybe you would expect. Still yeah. one offensive MVP. You know, yeah. what was what was your four years at William Jewell like? Uh, they were tough, to be honest, because we were we were transitioning. When I got there, we were actually NAI and we were transitioning to D2. Uh, and that transition, we were a bad NAI school. Uh, my my red shirt year, my first year, we were one and nine. And the one win was barely um against a team who didn't win at all and uh to so transferring to d2 was kind of just a daunting task uh and i think we handled it okay you know there was a lot of four and six years and stuff like that um personally i played some really good football at times and it was either you know i would get a hot streak cut short by injury which happened twice you know ankle injuries uh, my senior year was very disappointing. I uh, basically was a shell of myself by midseason. Uh, but my sophomore and junior year, I was able to play pretty well. Um, you know, I really dedicated myself. It was the first time in my life I really worked hard at being a good quarterback. And you saw it on the field. And, yeah, the numbers weren't phenomenal. Uh, you know, I wasn't breaking any records, at least, like, league records or anything like that. But anybody who watched me play or or could see my performance, like, okay, that kid – that kid's putting the putting the team or trying to put his team team on his back on a game in and game out basis and just do whatever he could to win. And and uh just at that level, you know, overall talent, team talent and team depth is just so important that um, you know, it's still just such a daunting mountain to climb as an individual. But I learned a lot about how to be a good leader and how, how to encourage people and, you know, overall, and I met phenomenal people that I'll have friends for the rest of my life. So overall, it was a very, very positive experience, although very frustrating at times, just because of, if you're not, if you're not winning the majority of your games and you're a competitor, it's going to be frustrating. And I want to ask you, cause you know, on this show, you know, everybody says if it's not D one, it's not the same level. And that's just not true. We've, proven it a thousand times d2 has some elite athletes um i'm a new england patriots fan and two of our stars on defense were d2 athletes and kyle yeah. Duggar and matthew judon so yeah d2 still produces them can you hit on some of the talent 
that you got to play with at that D2 level? Sure. The guys that I got to play with that were really, really talented. I think uh, a guy named Jack Bissonette is still one of the better football players I've ever played with. Uh, undersized DB, you know, but just from a being a like the definition of football players, it was amazing to see him watch and then uh, watch him play on a game and game my bosses. Guys like Tyler Bolas, guys like Johnny Mo, uh, John Molson, uh, Thomas Cook. You know, there's there's guys that could really really play football. I think I think the biggest dip Brandon Clore comes to mind. You know, there's there's just things that. Um, Overall, offensive line and defensive line size and talent is a big difference from D1 to D2. And I think overall speed at the skill players positioned. But, you know, there was still we still played against a lot, a lot, a lot of really good football players. And I played with a lot of really good football players. It's just who had more at the end of the day is kind of is kind of what determined it. So you finished the career at William Jewell, but your football career wasn't over it was actually really just starting kind of yeah i mean you end up in france first correct correct i actually think i played more more years of quarterback in europe than i did in the states i was i was gonna ask because i was looking at the career and i believe in what in two years did you play over 40 games in two years at one point ah uh, yes actually 45 in two years so um no, nah, it's unreal. But I didn't start playing quarterback until I was a freshman in high school. So eight years. No, no, I played significantly more quarterback in Europe than I did in the States. So yeah, I, gotta... 40, I don't recommend 45 games in two years, by the way. I was just about to ask, what is, I mean, we hear all the time, you know, we just saw, I don't know if you saw the news. Um, Matt Ryan officially got benched today for the season with the, they're calling it a shoulder strain, but a lot of folks are saying this is just, the end of the road. So the Colts benched Matt Ryan and Sam Ellinger starting for them. Now, I don't know if you Ooh. saw that. No, I have not seen that, but uh, that's surprising because, uh, you know, Matt Ryan played so well the week before. I think and... it's the, the, the strain on the body. I mean, the quarterback position, being able to do what he's done. I mean, he's one, he's, yeah, probably he's also passes than most. Yeah, yeah. And he's 38 and 39. And that's usually, that's usually when things start falling apart. So I want to ask you about playing pro ball in France first, because that obviously, how did that opportunity come about going from Missouri to France? Yeah. So like I said, the, you know, there was times that were very frustrating. My career at William Jewell in my senior year was very, very frustrating because I worked really hard. I was in really good shape. I was playing really well and then got an ankle injury. And then I was starting to come back a little bit, had a good game to end the season uh, which ended up going into overtime, and I threw a game-losing interception in overtime. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, yeah, no, I can't. I can't end it this way. You know what I mean? Um, and so a lot of guys, a couple guys recommended this website, Europlayers, and I made an account, and I got reached out to by several teams. And this one played internationally. Uh, the Ellen Court Templier played in the IFAF Champions League. And so that was kind of the tiebreaker for a lot of, because I really wanted to play internationally. I thought that was a cool concept. And uh, and I graduated December of 2013 and was on a plane in January 2014 to Paris, France, not knowing a single person and not speaking French, obviously. What was the biggest culture difference going from Midwest Missouri to Paris, France? The language. I mean, I mean obviously there were several other cultural differences, but, you know, 
in Paris, you know, or in France in general, you know, there's, a, I think they're, they're, you know, on average, a lot of guys are able to speak more than they're willing to, they're willing to, to do initially. But, you know, out of a team of 40 guys or so, I think, I think I probably was able to communicate on a decent level with 10 or 13. And the biggest thing is I was playing with men for the first time in my life. You know, uh, I was a 23 year old and, you know, my offensive line's average age was 32, you know? And so it was the first time in my life that I had to lead fathers, you know, like guys that were, you know, older than my oldest brother, you know? So it was like, um, that was a new challenge for me. I, I learned a lot about myself in that six months. And, you know, had a lot of success there, mm-hmm. but you didn't really, you know, you had the success in France and you didn't rest though. You immediately go. And for folks who don't know, Finland has a very, you know, well-known European pro league, the Maple league. It's very successful. It's we've covered the GFL on this podcast several times, Okay, but, you know, the Maple league and the GFL are kind of well-known as being two of the leagues that end the latest in Europe. So you yep. end in Paris, go straight to Finland and join in the Maple League. What was that like? Yeah, well, I I came home, luckily, and made one of my good friends' uh, weddings. So I flew straight from Paris to Dallas, Texas, uh, got the call in Dallas, Texas, didn't even unpack, and flew back to Finland. Um, It was a crazy process. Trying to replace an injured quarterback midseason is a really big challenge, and I honestly didn't play very good football there. Uh, good enough, but you know, to learn your teammates and get chemistry, you know, all within a week's time or so. Um, yeah, it was a very, very challenging task, but it, it ended very, very well. You know, and you guys actually won the Maple League championship. You, I believe, were named MVP of the Maple of the championship, League. Of the game? championship game. No, I think it was Jason Taylor Spears Price. Um, but for the Finnish league, or excuse me, for the French league, I was uh, import MVP. Okay, so I knew there was an MVP somewhere there. Yeah. In Folks, you're going to find out as we continue on. There's a few MVPs. In yeah, they could get hard to, to, to keep all on the same. Yeah, there's a couple of them. So what was the biggest difference between playing in France and Finland? What were the differences in those two? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I think overall, um, I don't want to say discipline, but like let's say um, the execute the execution was on a different level. Like for the French game, in my opinion, was a very simple game, and whoever had better better talent and athletes won. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of complexity in the game. In Finland, there was. There was. It wasn't always the best, most talented team won. There, there was a lot of coaching involved. The Roosters took things very, very seriously. It was more like the small college feel that I was used to than in France. And I'm assuming with the GFL, the GFL plays NCAA rules. Is the Maple League in France yeah. all NCAA? Yeah, I think that that's the IFAF, the International Federation of American Football, I think it is, uh, the governing body of all these all these leagues um it's all ncaa rules so for folks as you're kind of picturing this you know and you hear complexity keep in mind ncaa rules so biggest difference is going to be one foot is a catch things of that yeah, nature. Yeah. but i meant more from a from a schematic nature yep. uh, and how much time these guys put into it because that dictates a 
a lot of how, you know, sophisticated the game is over in Europe. Some teams can only afford to practice once because that's what their players can do. Some teams practice two or three times, which obviously the more you practice, the better the product's going to be. So you end in Finland, and I got to ask you too, because, you know, most of us have not been to Finland. You, What would have been the biggest cultural difference Finland to? Oh, I think Parisians and, and Finnish are like probably the exact opposites of people. Uh, uh, yeah, it was it was a stark contrast of, of personalities. You know, the French can be so flamboyant and over the top and and, uh, you know, theatrical at times, you know, very passionate people where or the finish you kind of have to like poke them with a stick sometimes to realize if they're still there or alive until you get a beer or two in them. Uh, but all really, really good people. And that, you know, that, that whole year, you know, I spent uh, January through July and F- France in July through September in Finland. And that whole year taught me like, there's good people everywhere. You know, uh, it, I can fit in anywhere, you know, I can, I can make friends anywhere. And it was a, it was a, it was one of the better, probably the best experience a 23 year old person could have in terms of just graduating college and trying to figure out what the real world is. You know, even though I wasn't in the real world, just, just in terms of being comfortable in your own skin. So you go to Austria next. What, what went into that decision? The AFL has some very you know rich tradition with a couple teams you landed with one of them there with the raiders what what was that process like and how did you wind up being a raider well it's funny ever since i started getting to europe it was like you you heard about a couple teams and one of the teams you just heard about all the time was the sparkle raiders and you know i decided probably midway through the season and in the french league is like okay i'm i want to I'm going to see what this whole European football thing is. And I'm going to try to climb the ladder. And I was able to do it pretty quickly. Uh, fortunately, because I just knew the right people. And and both my roommates and teammates in Helsinki were former Raiders. So they figured out what I wanted to do, kind of figured out who I was and my ambitions and everything like that. And they recommended me. And then the coaches, uh, Coach Shuan Fata and, and Lee Rowan reached out to me. and and. Uh, yeah. It was all history from there, I guess. Yeah. And you could call it history for sure. You spent really up until this past year with the Raiders. You won. I can't even begin to count them. How many championships, MVPs? What? what? Uh, well, five AFL championships, five Austrian Bulls, which I'm really proud of. Um, three CEFL titles, I believe. 17, 18, 19, um, one ECTC final and one super final, something like that. So 10, something in that range. I believe there was, that's what I think I came up with 10 and there was about four MVPs in there, three or four MVPs with the Vikings. Uh, Not the Vikings, my bad, the Raiders. We can't. No, that's okay. I, I know what you're getting at. Um, there was three league MVPs. And a handful of, uh, you know, I think just a couple championship MVPs, maybe two, three. I don't know. So I want to, you know, get into because you made Austria home. I mean, you, yeah, 
you you have established roots in Austria. What was what was so appealing about Austria that you know you, you made it home for the rest of your career? Well, uh, you I met a girl, and that that changes things. That is that is the ultimate uh, motivator right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could say that. But you know, outside of uh, meeting my future wife, um, I really did feel home in Innsbruck relatively quickly. I think the Tyrolean people I kind of just clicked with. Not that I didn't click with the French or the Finnish or anything, but it just felt more comfortable to me, more closer to my my upbringing, kind of. And um, and the football was great. And that's the thing I cared most about. You know, it really was the first time in my life that I felt professional and like a professional quarterback. And that was so important to me. Um, so everything just fit that was like, okay, this is where I, I should be. This is, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily the plan that I would be here, you know, what it looks like for the remainder of my time, you know, but, uh, but at the time it was like, yeah, I'm supposed to be here. And, you know, you, like we've alluded to had a lot of success. I was looking you through for well over 300 touchdowns, well over, I believe, did you end up with over 30,000 passing yards with the Raiders? So Tobias, I don't know. <laughs> Tobias so, so over here, it's pronounced Tobias. Sorry. See, I knew. I I was gonna say I've got a heavy uh, German ancestry, so I knew. I knew there was a different pronunciation. Yeah. I knew. I was looking, and you. I mean, you just had a ton of numbers, but I want to kind of break down the the level of play because the AFL. There's another team that you guys kind of butted heads with with the AFL. Yeah. And, known as the Vienna Vikings. And there was a yeah. lot of success and talent. Can you talk a little bit about what the talent level is like over there? Yeah, man. Some of the best football games I've ever played in my life were against the Vikings, you know, like uh, 2015, I can think of the Brown track game where I remember we ended up losing uh, kind of a heartbreaker, but I remember after the game it was like, that was the best football game I've ever played in. And I think it was the best football game I had played in till that point. Uh, and myself, you know, the, my performance. Uh, but there was just some absolute battles with Vienna. I can think of the 2018 Austrian Bowl, the the 2017 Austrian Bowl. I was kind of I was I was injured, and they they just outplayed us. But the 2018 2019 Austrian Bowls, that's just good football, you know. Like it doesn't matter what continent you're on, or or um, you know, whatever else may matter. At the end of the day, it's just really, really good football. And, you know, through my time at the Raiders, you know, there's a lot of people that ask, like, where does it match up? You know, we we played small college football teams, and we only lost one, uh, which was to Benedictine. And, of course, they didn't travel the full squads and didn't prepare. They were on holiday. There's a lot of factors. But uh, some of the best football games I've played in would have stacked up against good football in the States as well. Um because when you have enough talented football players that are prepared with good coaching, the product's just going to be good. I want to ask you, cause you know, looking, you obviously you landed Austria in 2015 played through 2022. So there was that 2020 COVID and COVID yeah. impacted football here in the States drastically. No fans, a lot happened over here. What was a COVID season like in Austria? Uh, only two teams decided to play. Uh, all the other teams decided not to. The Raiders decided not to. 
which was a decision I really supported. And um, and two teams, the Grouch Giants and the Vienna Vikings, played a best of uh, seven series, I believe, or best of five series, where the Vikings won every game. And that was it. That was the only football played the entire year. So I want to ask you, because, we, you know, over here with the NFL, we have like hard knocks and, you know, now they're doing in-season hard knocks. So we all get to see what a week looks like as a NFL athlete. What is, what's a week look like as a pro in Europe? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, for, for everybody, it looks a little bit different. You know, I can only tell you about what my experience was, particularly when I was just a normal pro and I was just being paid to play quarterback which quickly changed at the Raiders. I started gaining more responsibility than just playing quarterback. Um, but the typical day, game day was Saturday. Sunday was off. You know, Monday, I would come into the office. I would review the game. I would do the self-scout for our coaching staff and kind of did an efficiency chart on on uh, which plays were were efficient, which plays weren't, and then kind of cumulated that over the season to see patterns of which which concepts worked the best for us and which ones uh, were struggling. Um, then you start preparing for game planning and watching the opponent. Tuesday morning, you would come in game plan. I would game plan with the court, uh, the coaching staff, the offense coordinator, and the offensive coaching staff on Tuesday mornings. Lift Tuesdays at midday, eat lunch, go home, uh, have meetings Tuesday night. Wednesday, come into the office, do red zone goal line game planning. Uh, lift again, me probably just stretch. Uh, go home, practice, same thing Friday, play Saturday, repeat. So it's a, I mean, for me, it was really a 40-hour week job just playing quarterback and that's what I wanted. I loved it. So I got to ask you too, you know, in the NFL and a lot of the pro leagues here in America, we see about a 53 man roster is what people are used to. What's it like in Europe? Um, well, in the ELF, which we haven't, we haven't touched on yet. It's also 53 man rosters. It's very much structured like the NFL. Um, for, for the AFL, it was, it was whatever you had, you know, like, we would go to games where teams would have 25 players and we would go to games where the Vienna Vikings would have 80, you know, we, we hovered around 45 ish. Um, yeah. It just really depend. It, it, it was a pretty wide spectrum. You know, and you alluded to it. So we got to touch on it for sure. Um, you guys end up leaving the AFL and going to the ELF, which mm -hmm. for folks who don't know, the ELF is newer, but it is, Definitely quickly taking over in Europe as far as yeah. a premier league of football, a lot of expansion that we're going to touch on. But what was that process like for you as a player? What was going through your mind? And what was that like during that time? Well, I uh, very much plan on retiring after the 2021 season. Um, we won the Austrian Bowl. We did it in Innsbruck, which wasn't supposed to happen. Um, I was like, okay, that's good. Don't need to do it anymore. I had a daughter uh, during that time, during COVID. And it was like, okay, you know, my focus has shifted elsewhere professionally and I, I don't need to do this anymore. I don't need to put my body and family through this anymore. And then we joined the ELF or the ELF. And uh, I was like, well, I would regret not, not playing in this. So I did. And, and, you know, honestly, it was, 
from from a professionality standpoint, from a professionalism standpoint, for me playing quarterback, it was very similar. The biggest difference is there was more professionals. There was more people being paid to play, and their main purpose of being Innsbruck in Innsbruck was to play football. So in the in the AFL, there was three, and you could only dress two, and they were all Americans. You weren't allowed to bring in Europeans and stuff like that. Um, it was very very amateur in the sense of compensating players. Uh, and the ELF last year was 12. So there's 10 more guys walking around whose sole purpose of being in Innsbruck was to play football. And that was a pretty large difference from, you know, being in the office, guys taking advantage, working out the intensity and practice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what was the travel like? Because for folks who don't know the ELF, a little bit of difference. It's all of your, you know, there's teams from several different countries in the ELF. So what was travel like when you're, you're talking about 12 guys who are actually being paid to play? What was travel like? Uh, we traveled really, really well, but the traveling was further more consistently. Like we always played international along with playing in Austria so we had games in Poland. We had games in Paris during my time, a game in Berlin. Like we had some far trips too, but this year we had, you know, four or five of them. Um, but for those long games, we always took sleeper buses, like, like what, uh, you know, musical artists do on tour. Right. So we would always practice Saturday night or, or whenever meet up and then sleep through the night on a bus in a bed which was awesome. But a lot of teams, you know, make those trips on normal buses or, and some teams, you know, we didn't play Istanbul or, or Barcelona. A lot of, a lot of teams had to fly to get to their games. I mean, uh, the traveling compared to a, just a normal national league is, is quite substantial. So you had a, you had a lot of success in the ELF this past year. You won league MVP. You guys made it to the semifinal Come September, you decided to hang them up, though, officially. You officially retired as a player. What went through that decision, and what what were what were the emotions like when you finally decide, I'm going to put the cleats up? Well, you know, it was kind of interesting because when, when I was thinking about retiring after the AFL season in 2021, it was just kind of like, hey, I don't need to do it anymore. This, not, this is no – I don't need this challenge anymore. This, I've done everything you need to do, right? Um, and then the ELF came around and really in my heart, I was like, well, I can play for three or five, three, you know, three or four more years, you know, my physically, I can do this. And that was kind of the mindset. And then, you know, I started getting, you know, uh, banged up here and there, you know, I took a big shot against Vienna in the first game and kind of rung my bell. And it was just kind of like those old thoughts, like, Hey, you don't need to do this anymore. You know, um, but, you know, even mid-season, I wasn't 100% sure what I was going to do. And then it was just more or less an opportunity came around that I couldn't pass up. And I never wanted my playing career to hinder my post-playing career. And I felt like at this point, it was like, okay, you know, this this opportunity I have with Munich, uh, I'd be an idiot to pass up to keep playing my 160th game in Europe. You know what I mean? Like enough's enough kind of deal. You touched on it. You have now joined the Munich Ravens, who are still a part of the ELF. The ELF, we talked about, rapidly expanding. Munich is going to begin play in 2023. I believe uh, the Prague Lions are another expansion. Yep. So 
talk about the opportunity you got with Munich and what that all entails, and then also the ELF expansion and how rapid that's happening. Yeah, so last year the ELF expanded from eight teams to 12 teams, and this year from 12 teams to 18 teams. So Milan, the Swiss team, I forget the, the guards, I forget, they're, they're in Zurich. Uh, there's a Hungarian team, there's a Parisian team, the Czech team, the Prague team, and Munich. Am I missing one? I think that's all of them. And so uh, the league is expanding very, very quickly, and uh, which is exciting and kind of scary at the same time. But basically when the, the Munich team and uh, was being established, um, the GM, the general manager that was hired, I knew from working at the Raiders together and he's, he was at the Raiders for a long time. And he just kind of called me and said, Hey, do you want to run a football program? And I said, yes. And he's like, okay. And it was a very short conversation. He's like, this opportunity may arise. arise and I just wanted to know. So, okay. And I didn't think much of it because I didn't know how realistic of a candidate I was, you know, uh, just because it was, it's somewhat of an unorthodox choice. But if if you kind of think about it and know me personally, maybe, maybe not so unorthodox. But yeah, so basically um, my title is Director of Sports Operations. And what that basically means is all the internal processes within the sports program is kind of my responsibility, um, which is mainly at the, especially at the moment, but just in general as personnel. So you are helping to recruit players to Munich, correct? Yeah. So I'm helping build the coaching staff. I'm uh, responsible for, you know, kind of negotiating contracts with players and recruiting players and helping helping uh, coach Shoup, the head coach, build a roster, uh, bringing on support staff such as strength and conditioning, you know, uh, physical therapists um, or athletic trainers, I guess you should say, Um, you know, equipment managers, team managers, just, you know, everything that goes into a football program, basically. So have you... Did you know that that was something you wanted to get into with scouting and recruiting guys to, you know, build a roster? I know you've, you know, touched on coaching and you thought yeah. coaching was going to be a career, but did you know you wanted to get into a front office role at some point? Uh, not initially. That That's really come on in the last three years or so. And I think, I think it's the bigger void in Europe at the moment. Uh, I think there's good coaches in Europe. And I think they produce good players. Um, what I don't think there's enough of, and you know, the ELF is kind of dependent on it. In my in my opinion, is uh, there's not enough sports management in in American football in Europe. And you know, you talked about the Vikings and the Raiders. You know, you can talk about the German teams that have been good for a while now: Braunschweig, Frankfurt, you know, Swabish Hall. Uh, the the guy the teams that are sustained success not the teams that just come up like like Kiel did or or Berlin or or uh, I guess Dresden's been pretty consistent but you know really the teams that have been at the top of the the national leagues and competing international for eight ten years since I've been over here there's one common denominator most of the time and it's it's good administrative staffs behind the team good ownership good management. And, um, 
So I kind of got pulled in that direction over the last few years because uh, I just see it as vital at this point if if the ELF is going to work. And I really hope the ELF works long term. I got to ask you about the fan engagement and fan interaction because I've, you know, we've talked to guys in the GFL and they talk about going through and actually thanking fans after the game Mm -hmm. and interacting with them. What's fan engagement been like in the ELF and how special of an environment are these games? It's phenomenal, to be honest, compared to the Austin Football League. I think, I think the ELF is really on to something in terms of their stars, quote unquote stars, uh, are approachable, are reachable. Um, you know, if you message them on social media, they'll probably message you back. If you say what's up to them at a game, they'll probably say hello and take a picture with you. Um, you know, they're not, you know, like I would, I'm not on a different, you know, socioeconomic status, like hierarchy level, whatever, like we're just all in this little bubble of American football community in Europe. And we're all just wanting the same thing, which is really, really good football that's sustainable and players get paid what they deserve to get paid and organizations and players treat each other well. And it's a well-run, well, you know, uh, structured league. Everybody wants the same thing. So you really feel that in the ELF. I was really impressed and happy with that this year. So I want to get in a little bit of, you know, your position specific and giving advice to the younger generation, because, you know, a lot of young quarterbacks, you know, we have all these quarterback gurus over here. Now, a lot of people know of guys like Tom house or Carson Palmer's brother, Jordan has started to do a lot of it, but I want to ask you, you know, specifically, cause you, you ran a quarterback, you know, training company for several yeah. years. Yeah. What, what was that like? And where do you start if you get a young guy who's just starting? Where do you start fundamentals and basic with that? Yeah, good question. Um, in Europe, it would be different than the States because Europe, I mean, throwing the ball overhand is just such a foreign thing for, for them. They don't have sports like we have that are just built on overhand throwing like baseball and football. So you just start from – yeah, the bare basics, even how to hold a football right. And because I think I think being able to throw and catch a football is essential to the sport. Like if you play American football and you can't catch and throw a football, you're only so limited in what you can do. Right. And I'm not, I don't mean at practice. If you're an offensive lineman, you obviously don't need to throw. But I'm talking about meeting up with your th- friends and just throwing a football. Um, and then people see you doing that and want to do it. And, you know, just that ability is so important. But I, I realized from a very early time in my European career that they just don't have the resources necessary. So that's why I started the camp and I just, yeah, literally the bare basics of this is how the ball is supposed to come off your hand, which is so foreign to them that it's, it's this motion and not this motion. And, and um, yeah, just basically I wanted them to be able to throw a spiral at the end of the camp. And occasionally you get some guys, some talent and you can, you can fine tune some things, but uh but largely it was just the basic mechanics of yeah how to throw and how to how to incorporate your feet with a throwing mechanic. And if I would give advice to young uh, young quarterbacks is to be able to do all those things correctly with really good form uh, without thinking about it. Like I'm talking like 14 to 18, 14 to 17. If you if you can match your feet to your upper body and do all those things without thinking about it, 
you're comfortable enough in your technique without thinking about it. Cause the, my experience, I had to be taught all this in college. So when you're, when you're at practice and you're having to think about your technique, but also run an offense and do post snap reads and pre-snap reads and everything, it becomes overwhelming at times. Um, so if you can already have a solid foundation technique wise before entering college, where you don't have to think about your technique on a daily basis, uh, then you can focus all your energy onto learning the offense and operating the offense, man, that would be a huge advantage. And I got to ask you, cause we ask a lot of guys, but we never gotten to ask a quarterback this question. How much film, you know, film study, how important is it to your weekly routine as a quarterback? And if you're talking to a high school kid, how much time should they be dedicating to on film, you know, the film study, the weight room, and then obviously the practice field. Uh, all of it is so important for me in my, my career. Uh, the weight room started tapering off and the other two things started increasing, uh, particularly the film. Uh, that's just because I don't like the weight room. Um, but all things are very equally important. I think for, for me, watching film just gave me the confidence and security that, you know, when I walked on the film, most things I've already seen, right? Like I didn't want to be on the, I didn't, I never wanted it to be a situation where I walked on a game field and they did something that they've already done. And more than just like once in a game, four weeks ago, I'm talking about things that they regularly do. And I wasn't prepared for that. And for me, it was just like a psyche thing. As soon as I saw it, it was like, okay, I know I've seen this. You know, and, and I would have I would be prepared for it. Um, and yeah, from high school to college was a big jump in film and from college to pro was a big jump of film. But that was mainly because I was more involved in the offense and I helped game planning. I was I'm more more or less of an assistant coach as well. But I think watching watching the opponent is essential to be prepared for things that you're most likely going to see. But watching yourself and watching the offense is crucial, absolutely crucial. If you don't watch practice and you don't get on the same page with your guys, you're just limiting yourself at all levels. You know, we would we would watch practice with the the Raiders U15 when I coached them because to be able to show people their mistakes and also, you know, watch something with a teammate and go, what were you thinking there? What was your thing? You know, have that discussion. It's so valuable. And I got to ask you too, you know, we hear all the time quarterbacks are the leaders of the offense and you're, you got to be a great quarterback. You have to have that type a leader personality. What does that mean to you? And how did you embrace that in your personal playing career? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I don't think I was your stereotypical type a leader in sense of like, I wasn't very vocal. And, and like on the side or anything like if I had something to say I would tell somebody like hey when they do this do this hey is everything good are you you know are you hearing my communications etc but it wasn't like come on you know I was not really a rah-rah guy but you know I think to answer your question I don't know if it's a type a or type b or whatever type of leader or personality you are it's more so you got to know your shit can I oh, sorry can I cuss uh, hey, you can do whatever you want. I already, I already did, I guess. Uh, you gotta, you gotta know your stuff. You gotta know the inside offense, inside and out. So, like, if a guy asks you a question, or if things aren't working exactly the way you want them to, you always have 
the concepts to fall back on for me. So it's like, hey, this is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. This is what they're doing. Make this adjustment. This like the confidence, like, and then it's like, oh, okay, we're good. He knows what he's doing. Like we're, we're in good shape. And, you know, whatever personality you are, be yourself, you know, but if, if guys don't, if guys don't have the confidence that you know what you're doing um, and you can't run the offense, then doesn't matter how good of a leader you are. You have to, you have to, have to, have to know the offense inside and out. And you have to understand what the offense corner is trying to do with every single play call that he calls. And that confident just kind of radiates where it's like, Hey, I know what we're doing. You know, if this happens again, do this, this is the check. This is why I'm calling Mike this. And when you can start articulating the offense in that kind of manner, I think it just exudes confidence, no matter what type of personality you are. I got to ask you as well, if you could talk to a high school quarterback who's going through the recruiting process and whether it be a similar situation that you encountered or just maybe a kid who thought they were going to get other offers that never materialized, what would what advice would you give to that young quarterback of staying the course and making the most of the opportunity that they do have? Yeah, I, it's exactly what I would say. And I don't know if this is the best advice. I really don't like if if you if you really like if your dream is to play in the NFL like mine was and nothing else, you know, nothing else is sufficient, um, then you probably shouldn't follow this advice and do what I did, you know. But for me, what I did is instead of looking to change circumstances or 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 go somewhere else or I just try to make the absolute best of the scenario that I was in and that's probably not in my career wasn't super advantageous in terms of making it to the NFL or CFL or one of these bigger leagues but it very much prepared me to when I got to Europe to make the best out of that opportunity and I made a career out of playing football which a lot of people can't say you know like I paid bills for nine years, mainly from, from playing quarterback. Um, so if you take that approach, but also look for better opportunities than I had, you know, in high school and college, um, you're going to be in pretty good shape. And if those opportunities don't come immediately, you're going to be okay. Just again, try to make the best of where you're at and things will fall into place. Sean. But that was that was a different time in college football. Now people can go wherever they want, whenever they want. So always, always look for a better opportunity, I guess. Uh, but while while making the best of the opportunity you're in, uh, I don't know. It's a brand new world for college football. So uh, that's old school advice, I guess. NIL and transfer portal uh, have changed everything. Yeah, uh, I've I can imagine there's so many so much movement nowadays. That playing for three or four universities is not abnormal not if i mean look at you know as a buckeye fan we had quinn ewers come from the state of texas to us ohio state thought they had the next best thing he didn't win the job made his million at ohio state now he's down at texas doing his thing i mean it's just the world of football is rapidly evolving and i want to end with this i want to end with you you know we've had an absolute blast just having you on just educating people on a different world of football you know the European football is not that different than American football and it's rapidly rising. And I want to end by allowing you to kind of tell people, if you could tell us one thing of not only the ELF and what folks can expect from the ELF next year, but specifically your Munich Ravens, 
what should we know for 2023 and what would you tell an American who maybe is just noticing the ELF and just starting to watch? Oh, okay. Where do I start? Um, I think, I think people will slowly start realizing that there are more opportunities out there than just the NFL and, and the Canadian football league. The Japanese have a very successful league and have for a very long time. Guys go over there and make a good living. Uh, and play and play pretty good football. Same, same with the ELF. I think it's on a similar path. No, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be able to retire afterwards and never work again, but you're gonna be able to live comfortably during your time playing too. Um, and if you make the best of that scenario, some of these guys are living, living well. And you get to immerse yourself in a new culture, travel, see the world a little bit, all part of the experience, which which is, you know, for me, an invaluable experience. I, I was I traveled so much my first few years in Europe and saw so many different things and and really grew as a person while, again, paying bills by playing American football, which is, you know, uh, again, not everybody gets to say that. Um, and then the ELF is just an absolute game changer. The level is continuing to rise. The exposure, the popularity of it is a continuing to rise. And uh, I'm really excited about the future of the, the, the ELF and, and which brings me to the Munich Ravens, you know, um, Bavarian football is one of the more talented and deep football landscapes in Europe and just really hasn't had an organization to kind of bring all the pieces together from all over the state and um, that's what we're looking to do because there's a ton of, ton of, ton of talent that we're looking to showcase. And we just kind of had to build the infrastructure for these guys to do what they do best. And that's that's basically my job. And that's that's what we're trying to do at the Munich Ravens with Sebastian and, and, and Coach Shoup. And uh, I think we're going to be pretty competitive almost immediately. And um, just because the, the football there was just waiting you know, the football landscape was just sitting there waiting for an organization to be able to showcase them. And so hopefully the other expansion teams feel the same. I'm sure they do. And hopefully everybody can put together really competitive football teams for the beginning and uh, and continue to make this product as fun as it was to watch for most of the time last year. Sean, it's been an absolute blast having you on, man. We wish you the best of luck in Munich and with the Ravens in 2023. That's all we got for you guys. Like I always tell you guys, rate, subscribe, and review to the podcast. Until next time, we'll see you guys later. Have a good one.